Have you noticed that some things naturally get tangled? Like our daughter's hair the night that she had bubble gum in her mouth when she went to sleep. Or a string, or ropes, or extension cords, or my all-time favorite, Christmas tree lights. They just get tangled. Do you notice also that some things we like when we're reading to highlight? That you highlight something you want to remember, you want to emphasize. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul is going to actually help us untangle some confusion about the gift of tongues. And he's also going to highlight the emphasis on Bible prophecy. So we want to see these things together, okay? So we're going to read the Word of God. I want you to stand, and you'll notice that uh, in light of the metaphor illustration today, we've highlighted rather than underlined what you're going to read out loud. So here we go, all right? 1 Corinthians 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. No one understands him, but he understands mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So Paul is going to really get into something here that has been a a bit of a challenge in the church, and he's going to start off in verses 1 to 5, what we just read, in an explanation about the priority of prophecy. He's going to highlight prophecy, and he's going to begin to untangle the questions about tongues. Now, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is a literary unit. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 begins talking about the metaphor of the church as the body of Christ. He's teaching theology by anatomy. He's actually saying that every believer has a spiritual gift and needs to be a functioning part of the body of Christ, that God sovereignly puts us in the body and that we're to use our gifts to build up one another. Chapter 13, Paul really gets to the heart of the matter and saying, even if you have a spiritual gift, your motivation needs to be love. That is the love that is reproduced by the Holy Spirit in you to be able to show that love to one another. In 1 Corinthians 14, though, he begins to address some issues, some problems. All the way back in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, about the things you wrote to me about. And apparently, there was some disorder and confusion in the the church. And he's, he's talking about this. He's addressing this. But you need to know that Paul does this in a spirit of love. Matter of fact, in this chapter, four times Paul calls them brothers. He's very, very warm and very affectionate, and he starts chapter 15, verse 1. And so he's, he's talking in that warmth and that care for people. And so he tells them, listen, you need to desire, you need to desire spiritual gifts, but you need to pursue love. You need to run after love as you do that. But then he says, especially in prophecy. So Paul's concern with the use of spiritual gifts is going to be that we use our spiritual gifts always to build up or strengthen one another. Matter of fact, Paul uses the word edify in verses three to five or build up four times. He uses in verse 12, 23, 26, 27, all the way down to 33 to 35. It just punctuates the entire passage. This needs to be done to build up, to strengthen, to edify. It's a word that's used for construction. 
Some of you work in the construction field. It's, that's what it's talking about. Actually construct one another, strengthen one another, encourage one another, he's saying. This is the only letter from Paul where he addresses the confusion and the problem about the gift of tongues. Why is it that this church had the problem with it? We already know that the church in Corinth had some other issues. Some issues with allowing immorality in the church, chapter 5. Going to court with one another, chapter 6. Confusion about the Lord's table, chapter 11. He's addressing all of these issues. Chapter 15, he's going to have to unpack for them the doctrine of the resurrection because they're confused about that. So I find it interesting that a church that Paul says you are spiritually immature, literally he calls them carnal, is the church that's having the biggest problem with this issue. You want to keep that in mind when we unpack this and think about this. He's addressing that issue. Paul's going to end this chapter saying that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, and that all things are to be done decently and in order. And apparently, the, the fact he says it later in this chapter, the passage that we'll be looking at next week, he's saying that, that something was out of order, something was not bringing peace in terms of the way that they needed to untangle the gift of tongues and to put the highlighter on prophecy because they were missing the point. They were missing it. I want to I have you just think with me about the gift of tongues for a minute in terms of where we see that showing up in the Bible. So I want you to just kind of, in your mind, step back all the way to Acts chapter 2. Don't turn your Bibles there. Just think about this. It's a day of Pentecost. Jesus has ascended to heaven, but before he went, he told his disciples, he said, wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Spirit to come upon you. It is going to become the beginning, the birth of the church, a feast of Israel, the feast of ingathering. And 120 of disciples of Jesus are in the upper room at that occasion. And the wind blows. They can hear it. They sense it. It is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And then there are gifts of, of there, there are, there's the um, sign of a, a flame of tongue on the head of every single person in that room. What's the significance of that? In the Old Testament, the presence of the glory of God was a pillar of fire. Now that fire is distributed on the head of everyone, showing that every believer now is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak with other tongues. And that's the issue that we're wrestling with here. But they're speaking in tongues that were known languages, unknown by the speaker. I want you to get that definition. The gift of tongues, according to the day of Pentecost, is a known language, unknown by the speaker. Because in that passage, they're speaking in tongues, which they didn't understand, but though all the people that gathered around as spectators were Jews, they're hearing the wonderful works of God in their own language. And in Acts chapter 2, 15 different languages are specifically identified that people heard. So a known language, unknown by the speaker, interpreted by the people that knew that language. That's what the gift of tongues was and is, okay? And so that, that's what's happening. By the way, it kind of flips the Tower of Babel where tongues were confused in disunity. Now God is bringing unity in this new people, the church, as he's bringing it together. All kinds of symbolism on the day of Pentecost. One other thing, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people are saved. At the base of Mount Sinai, when the law was given, 3,000 people died because the law brings death and grace and the gospel brings life. Beautiful, significant um, expressions that are here. So 
there's a lot of untangling that needs to happen about the gift of tongues. Because people have today made it something that isn't seen in the day of Pentecost, as if it's another kind of gift, some kind of a prayer language. There's also confusion today about somehow associating that the gift of tongues accompanies for every believer the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I can understand why that would be some confusion, because when we see the baptism of the Spirit happening on the day of Pentecost, later at the house of Cornelius in chapter 10 and 11, later with the um, servant, with those that were disciples of John the Baptist, I can see why there's some confusion. And yet, Paul, in this same letter we're reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, says this, you were all baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now, just sit in that a minute. Paul makes a statement that all the believers in Corinth were baptized with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't tell them to be baptized by the Holy Spirit as a command. He states it as a fact. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? When I study through the entire Bible about the baptism of the Spirit, here's what I discover. The baptism of the Spirit is that sovereign act of God that happens to the believing sinner at the moment of their conversion where they are placed into the body of Christ, into a union with Jesus so that he becomes their head and they become a part of his body. They are baptized into a union with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the baptism of the Spirit. And no place in any of the passages that we read about the Holy Spirit in the rest of the New Testament is there a command to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, The baptism of the Spirit cannot always be associated with tongues because not all believers have the gift of tongues according to what Paul says in chapter 12. Not all believers have any spiritual gifts even in the apostolic age. So to associate that and say the baptism of the Spirit is associated with the gift of tongues and it's something that a person needs to do or pray for, we're not told that in the New Testament, friends. One of the classes that I enjoyed teaching in our church twice now, it's the only class I've taught two times in eight years and it is the Holy Spirit in you. The reason I taught it a second time is there's so many people asking questions and wanting to help understand. I wanna just declare to you right now, Chapel Point believes in the work and presence of the Holy Spirit. We will not be a church that neglects the person and work of the Spirit. But we need to distinguish when we study the ministry of the Holy Spirit between what is commanded and what is taught to be believed and lived in light of. I am taught that I am baptized with the Spirit. I'm to live in light of that. I am commanded to be filled with the Spirit, to submit to the Spirit's control. And that shows up in my life of praise and thanksgiving and submission, and it shows up in my relationships and my marriage and with, with uh, children and parents and work. That's where it shows up relationally. I am commanded to walk by the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, which shows up in character. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Friends, it's hard to fake relationships and hard to fake character. And the filling of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit are the genuine emphasis that a person is being transformed by the work of the Spirit. So there's confusion about that. There's confusion about that. Why does Paul while he's untangling the problem of tongues, run the highlighter over prophecy in this passage that we just read. Let me just speak to that. Prophecy, and you'll see this on the screen, was the actual proclamation of the message of God's word given to the apostles. A prophet was God's mouthpiece. Prophecy was not simply foretelling, it's forthtelling. Actually, the mouthpiece of God. And so the prophets were giving the actual word of God to people. And the signs, though, 
the gift of tongues was to authenticate that message as a sign. Later in this text, Paul's going to talk about the, the gift of tongues being a sign to unbelievers. So while prophecy was an ac- actual proclamation of the message of God, the gift of tongues was, a, to, was to authenticate that message. And the reality, the Word of God, was to be more valued than the sign that points to it. Let me illustrate it this way. Supposing you're driving down I-96 and it's lunchtime and you see a sign for a restaurant you like and it's coming up at the exit. That sign isn't the restaurant. The sign points to the restaurant. You can't eat the sign. It's not going to satisfy you for lunch. The sign points to it, tells you where to go. In the same way, the gift of tongues was a sign pointing to the message of the apostles saying, this is the true message of God. Believe it and live in light of it. So Paul then is saying that that this, the sign mattered because it pointed to the message that ultimately mattered. That's why he's saying, put the highlighter on prophecy, not on tongues. The second thing I want you to see, prophecy is the giving of new revelation, while preaching is the exposition and application of existing biblical revelation. I want you to understand this. I think there's a lot in this chapter that we can apply to preaching of the Word today. So prophecy is the giving of new revelation. Preaching is the exposition and explanation of existing revelation. And and I think in this passage, there's there's some parallels. There's things that we can learn and benefit from. I've just personally, as I try to, to be faithful in preaching the word, this chapter has kind of been written on my heart over and over again about what, how should I prepare myself to do that well? So friends, if, if Paul is putting a highlighter on prophecy, then you might understand why preaching is so central to the health and life of a church, and it has been. In every spiritual awakening, the preaching of the word, uh, together with prayer, has been a priority. That's why in our, uh, our, our vision statement as a church, we talk about being rooted in prayer and rooted in the Bible. Why? It is through the teaching and preaching of the word of God that God changes people. Paul then moves in verses 6 to 12 from this, uh, this challenge that he gives where he's giving explanation to now giving an illustration. He's going to illustrate the importance of giving clarity for communication. I'm going to let you sit, um, otherwise you'll be up and down all day because we have four different passages that we've broken this down into. So just follow along. Verse 6, now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So in other words, somebody speaking in an unknown language isn't going to communicate biblical truth to them. Even if lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, in other words, can't be understood, how will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages. Now, he's talking here again about known languages as he ties to the gift of tongues in the world. None is without meaning. But if I don't know the meaning of the language, in other words, I don't understand the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, unless... Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So Paul begins to really untangle using questions and illustrations about the gift of tongues. Notice how many questions Paul asks here. 
He's asking questions and using them as a rhetorical device to try to get people to think, to get people to engage. And then he uses three illustrations to make his point. So look at this. Here's the first illustration. Musical instruments, the flute or the harp. He said, if you're playing a flute or you're playing a harp, I can't play either, and you can't play the tune and nobody recognizes it, it's of no benefit. Nobody's going to say what beautiful art that is, what great music, if there's no tune to it. It's not understood. That's his point. Then he says, if someone plays a bugle or a trumpet or a horn that is normally used to call the army to battle, but it's indistinct, it's not clear what's being played, nobody's going to get ready to battle. They're not going to assemble. That's what he's saying. It's got to be clear communication. Clear communication in music, clear communication in the call to battle. The third illustration he uses is languages. Again, known languages. He said, if you don't understand the language, nobody is going to get clear communication. And that's why he's saying, if you have a person speaking in tongues and, they, and you don't have an interpreter present, he's going to argue later, then you're, you don't have clear communication. Friend, listen, one of the things we really need is we need clarity in communication. Uh, one, of the, one of our presidents who was uh, very... Uh, he couldn't be president today. He'd never get elected. But he was, um, he was a man of very few words. And one day, his wife was sick, and he went to church, walked out of the White House, walked across to the church he was going to. And he came back, and his wife, and this was Calvin Coolidge, by the way. He, he came back, and his wife said, how was church? Fine. What did the pastor speak about? Sin. What did he say about it? I think he was against it. <laughs> Friends, that's not clear communication. Clear communication, whether it's a musical instrument, whether it's a, a bugle, whether it is language, needs to be clear. And that's his point about tongues. It's not clear. It's not clear unless it's understood. So then Paul moves to application, starting at verse 13. He says that we need interpretation for understanding. Application. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he might interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit's praying, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I'm going to pray with my spirit, but I'm going to pray with my mind also. I'm going to sing praise with my spirit, and I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider, person that's not understanding Scripture, or, or they're still wrestling with it, say amen? They're agreeing with it. To your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. There's that word again, edified, strengthened. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So Paul wasn't speaking against speaking in tongues. That was still a gift at the time in which he's speaking. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a non-intelligible tongue without interpretation for understanding. So Paul is saying here, he says, listen, if you pray in a tongue, which would be a known language unknown by the speaker, but you don't understand it, then you may be praying in your spirit, but your mind is not engaged. If you sing in a tongue and your mind is not engaged, it's not going to... By the way, when you sing, I hope your mind is engaged, not just your voice. When you sing, your mind needs to be focused on what is being sung, the truth of what's being sung. You need to be meditating upon that to fully engage in worship, not just with your spirit, but with your mind. 
And Paul says, if you don't do that, it is not going to help. It's not going to help. So one of the things I just want to say to you, there's, there's a lot of controversy about the gift of tongues, and I recognize that speaking into it today. So I want to help you with something. On, there's a QR code on your notes, and if you're watching online, you'll have access to this as well. And if you go on that QR code, you're going to find a Bible study that I've written called Wondering About Signs and Wonders. Uh, please don't go on it today, right now, and start reading it, because I'd rather you get the rest of the message and then go study it, okay? Wondering about signs and wonders. What it is, you'll see at the very top of it, it shows three circles. The central circle is what we call core Christian doctrine. Things like the Trinity, the humanity of Christ, the deity of Christ, Christ's substitutionary death that we celebrated in communion, his bodily resurrection, that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that salvation is only by grace through faith. Those are core Christian doctrines, the, the attributes of God. The next circle that you'll see on that is distinctive doctrines. That's where Christians disagree. Things like baptism, things like what we're talking about today, where there's disagreement within the body of Christ. If we agree here and disagree here, that person's still my brother in Christ, my sister in Christ. And that's why you'll see alongside that it's four words. We want to show love, unity, respect, and humility as we talk about this topic. So that, that sets the tone for how we have these conversations at Chapel Point, all right? But you'll also then see a series of questions. There's a question and Bible passages to look at to answer that question. And, and it's a good way for you to follow up on this message, to wrestle with this question, what about tongues? Why does Paul say we need to untangle this? Why does he say we need to focus on prophecy? And I would just encourage you to do that. Even do that this afternoon. Listen, the NFL hasn't really started yet. You can really engage in this and enjoy it and have some benefit from it, okay? You can really do that. And I hope that you will. I want you to understand that um, as Paul is addressing this, he continues on in verses um, 20 to 25 to talk about how when there, there's conviction that can be brought when there is proclamation for evangelism rather than the confusion of tongues. Again, why he's putting the highlighter on prophecy. So follow along here as we look at the, the last part of this passage we're unpacking. He said, brothers, and he uses that term repeatedly here, brothers, don't be children immature in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues, by the lips of foreigners, I'm going to speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 28, verse 11 and 12. We'll come back to that. He said, and then he explains this, this thus tongues are a sign not for believers, not a part of worship, but for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but it is to edify and build up believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, an outsider, somebody who's not yet understanding, or an unbeliever, a person who doesn't embrace the gospel, they enter, they will not, will they not say that you're out of your mind? Uh, the word is actually, you're out of your noose, you're out of your mind. And it's a word that was actually used for Paul by Festus saying, you are crazy, Paul, you've lost it, basically what he's saying. We'd say it today, you're out of your mind. So if, if an unbeliever comes in and he hears everybody speaking in tongues, they're saying, you're a bunch of crazy people, and he walks out with no effect. But look what happens next. But if I'll prophesy speaking the word of God, an unbeliever outsider enters, he is convicted by all, 
and he's called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare, God is really present in this church. So he's saying it is through the proclamation of the Word of God that the Holy Spirit brings conviction on people to convert them to faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, do you understand this? God uses his word to convict and to convert people. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. Paul said to Timothy, from a child you've known the holy scriptures, which were able to make you wise unto salvation. So he said, if a person comes into a church and everybody's speaking in tongues, they're going to walk out saying, you're crazy. But if they comes in and the word of God is being proclaimed, they will, they will be convicted by the Holy Spirit, and they will be converted, and they will understand that God is present among his people. Friends, that's why in Protestant churches, in churches, non-denominational churches like this, the preaching of the word and the teaching of the word has always been a priority. Why? Because God uses it to edify the believer and to convert the sinner at the same time. God uses it in that way. There's something else we need to understand. What Paul is saying here. And when he quotes from Isaiah 28, 11 to 12, is that the, the Jews had refused to repent of their idolatry and sin when the word of God was spoken in the Hebrew language. So Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 28, 11 and 12, I'm going to actually send you to where there's going to be a foreign language and you're going to have to listen to that now to try to understand the, the captivity that for the north went to Assyria and the south went to Babylon. You're going to have the word of God now in a language you don't understand. Why? because you didn't repent, you didn't respond. And so there's a sense in which that speaking in tongues was actually a judgment on Israel in Isaiah 28. It's interesting that Paul's quoting this here. It's a sign. It's a sign from God. I want to just say to you that in the, um, in the day uh, of, of uh, Paul, and there was, um, there was actually a, uh, an oracle on Mount Parnassus, about 75 miles west of Athens, it was a place where prophetesses would go and priestess would, would speak for the god Apollo. They would prophesy in a trance state after breathing fumes from a crevice in the mountain. And their messages were obscure and could be interpreted many different ways. And that's called the Oracle of Delphi. That was happening in Greece at that time. I just want to say to you, a static utterance is something that actually happens among Mormons who deny Christ, among Hindus who have many gods. And so this idea of a static utterance is very widespread in a lot of world religions that have nothing to do with Christianity. So I just would caution in assuming that everything that is done in the name of Christ may not be. We need to let the Word of God speak and speak with authority about this. So what do we do with this? How do we respond to this? I want to give you five applications to the Word of God as we go, okay? Five applications. Number one, the Word of God is to be our authority, not our experience. My friends, I can't trust my experience to be my authority, but I can trust the Word of God. The Word of God is to be our authority. The fact that you or someone else experiences something doesn't make it true or right. The Word of God has to be the test. This is the foundation this is the filter. This is the focus. Our experience is to grow out of the roots of a clear understanding of Scripture. Friends, I want an experience with God. I'm not against experience. I want to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. But I want my experience to grow out of Scripture because I can trust this, and it grows my faith and builds me up. 
Friends, have an experience with God, but let your experience grow out of Scripture. Third, God uses his word to convict and plant faith in the heart of those who need Christ. If you have a friend who doesn't know Jesus, know they will not be converted apart from the word of God, which is why getting people into a study like in the Gospel of John is such a great tool to let them discover who Jesus is and what it means to have a relationship with them. Friends, the Word of God is not your personality, it's not your arguments. It is the Word of God that God uses to convict and to convert people. So if you have a friend that needs Christ, help them get into the Word of God and discover for themselves. The Word is given to build up one another, not self. No spiritual gift is given to build up the individual that has that spiritual gift. And by the way, no spiritual gift is a measure of spirituality. You can have a spiritual gift according to what Paul says and still be carnal. That's why character and relationships and likeness to Jesus Christ is the better way to measure. The word is given to build up one another, not self. And finally, the preaching of the word of God is to be a priority in the church. Friends, that's why I love Chapel Point. That's why I love being here. Because I really believe the word of God has given its place among the people of God. The public proclamation of scripture It's exposition and explanation and application to our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit is really what we need to always focus on in the church. When the preaching of the word is no longer given its rightful place, the church has gone into a slide. In the Reformation and every revival, prayer and the word of God are the very thing that God uses to be able to bring spiritual awakening. And we want to be a church who believes in the Holy Spirit and lives in relationship with the Holy Spirit through prayer and through the Word of God that uses our spiritual gifts to build up one another. Why? Because God is on the move, and I want to be a part of what He's doing. How about you? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for helping us untangle what would be so complicated. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for its help to us. And thank you, Lord, for the spiritual gifts that you give. I pray for every believer here, that we would consider what your word actually teaches, that we'd humble ourselves under your word and let your word be the soil that roots our experience. Lord, may the preaching of your word always have priority in this church for your glory, for the edification of your people, and for the gospel to penetrate the hearts of people who don't yet know you. In Jesus' name, amen.